Well, good morning, good morning. Good morning. So today what we're going to be doing is uh, looking at Luke uh, chapter 24, verses 13 through 36, the infamous story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Emmaus, I don't know, I'm sure Jared will correct me afterwards if I said that wrong. Okay, chapter 24, verse 13 through 36, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, another uh, glorious day to come before you, to worship you, to uh, renew covenant with you, Father, to experience Christ in the midst of your people. Uh, we thank you so much for the rain uh, in the, on the fires and the rain for the very dry and thirsty ground. We pray, Father, that uh, those fires that are purifying would, in fact, uh, abate at this point and give people some, some rest. Uh, we, we don't know why you do uh, these kinds of things to us, Father, but we know that they are for our good, for the good of your people, for the glory of your name. We pray, Lord, that you give us faith to see that uh, as our families struggle out east. We thank you for this morning. We pray that you open our hearts and our minds um, and the eyes of our heart to understand, to see you and to recognize you not only in, in our own circumstances, um, but in world history and in current events. And we pray, Father, that you give us indeed the peace of Christ which surpasses understanding, and amen. So this is lengthy, but I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it real fast, just so you guys know exactly what I'm talking about, in case you didn't bring a Bible. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, but about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? His sense of humor is hilarious. No, 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 tell me again. What is that? I have no idea. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to, the, to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things, things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He, he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. We'll, we'll stop there for now. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. Do you ever struggle to see Jesus? in the midst of your circumstances? Is it hard to discern him in the troubling and confusing things that happen to you and happen in the world? We have well-founded expectations of what Jesus is going to do and what he is doing currently in our lives. 
But how often do those expectations align with what is actually happening to us? We all expect big things. We all expect great things. And then we look around and we wonder, uh, what is going on? What is going on? Is it hard to see Jesus in what's happening to you? We love him. We know him. But how well do we understand him? How good are we at seeing Jesus in the midst of our circumstances? Is he really near? Is he really good? Is he really all-powerful? Is what's happening to you revealing him or hiding him? Do you see him in what's going on in your life? Do you see him in what's going on in the life of this, um, in this country, this denomination? Do you see it? Or are the things that are going on keeping you from seeing him? How do you, we improve our eyesight? How do we strengthen our eyes of faith, the eyes of our heart, as it says in the Bible? In our circumstances in culture and world history, how do we mature in our ability to see, to recognize Jesus? This has profound relational implications. Jesus promised to be with you until the end of the age. And if that is true, why is it so hard to see him, to recognize him? Why does he seem so distant from us? Why? What is the problem? What is the problem? The problem is us. The problem is our own foolishness. The problem is our own lack of faith. In the Emmaus Road story, two disciples are headed in the wrong direction. Now, all the other disciples are still in Jerusalem. We're going to find out later that Jesus actually wants them to stay in Jerusalem. That's where he wants them because the Spirit is coming. And so here we have two disciples who, after everything that's gone on, decide, okay, I don't, I don't, they don't understand what's going on, so we're going to leave. So they're going in the wrong direction. Right? Right, right out of the gate, this is what's happening. These disciples are not discerning. They do not get what's going on, and so they're, they're headed in the wrong direction. They are also full of confusion. They're full of doubt. It says they're sad. It says they're debating. Um, the, these are unsettled disciples. Things are not going well for them. They can't see Jesus spiritually, and then in the story, what's funny is they can't see him physically either. But Jesus is there, isn't he? He is present. They can't see him, but he's right there with them, walking on the road. And the great shepherd pursues two wayward sheep. That's what the story is about. The great teacher has a personalized lesson plan. The great physician has met his children on the road because he's bringing them a new pair of glasses. Right, Cubby? Yeah. Amen to that. So today, let us see Jesus in this story, okay? This is a story for us because we are these disciples. We are these disciples. It's a story for us that we might learn how to better see Jesus in our own story. Today, let us learn together how Jesus uses the scriptures and communion to give us himself fully and completely. The first thing we need to grasp is that knowledge and understanding are not the same thing. We often use those words interchangeably, but to know something and to understand something, two completely different ideas. Okay, we look at verse 13 to 15. That very day, two of them were going to a village near Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. These disciples are discussing what Jesus' ministry means. They are discussing um, the things that they have, have witnessed themselves, actually, the things they know about Jesus. The word in verses 14 and 15 
for a conversation discussing is actually, it means strongly debating. So these guys are not just going along like having a chit-chat. They are debating with one another. And you know what goes into it when you're debating with someone that's usually intense. It's usually because there is a sharp disagreement. These guys are not on the same page. They do not have peace. Um, they think very different things about what's going on. Um, so they're strongly debating these things. These are two experienced theologians who are debating the finer points of Christology. Okay, that's what we should imagine here. These are men who witness Christ, his teaching, his work. They know him. And yet they are super confused. Okay? The, all the things that they, know, that they know is availing them very little. Okay? What they are debating is, is subsequently um, re, um, uh, expressed. We find out what it is exactly they're debating because they explain to Jesus what their conversation is about. In verse 19, they, they say that they know Jesus of Nazareth, they know the historical figure, was a prophet mighty in word and deed. The disciples know what he taught and what he did. These are followers who know his power and his goodness. Okay? They've experienced him. They saw what he could do. Furthermore, in verse 21, they refer to Jesus as the Redeemer of Israel. They expected him to be the Messiah. That's who they think he is. That's what that language means. They expected him to be the Messiah. But what's happened doesn't align with their expectations. They have very, very well-defined, as first-century Jews, expectations about what the Messiah was going to do, and then Jesus shows up, and it's very strange. It's very weird. They have strong views of religious and political liberation. Strong views. But it says in verse 20, verse 20, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. So the religious leaders didn't crown the apparent Messiah. They crucified him. They crucified him. This is very strange. Lastly, these doctrinaires have heard two eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. Okay? It's very important to understand from the Old Testament that two eyewitnesses is enough to establish the validity of something. So if two people come to you, and they're upstanding people, and they both tell you a story about something, that, you enter that into the courtroom as a fact. Okay? That, that establishes the validity. And yet, these guys are amazed. They are still confused. They don't believe. Okay? Their skepticism about the resurrection is apparent. It contradicts all known science. I can just imagine them thinking that. This, this story contradicts everything we know about people. People die, they stay dead. That's what happens. Okay, they're just as skeptical in the first century about this kind of thing as we are today. I'm sorry, he, he did what now? <laughs> he came out of the ground? No. He could make people do that, but if he's dead, right, he's not here to resurrect himself, so how, how exactly does that happen? Okay, they're very confused about it. The whole story that they know, all these facts they know, it contradicts tradition. Okay, Messiah was supposed to come to destroy our enemies, not be destroyed by our enemies. So the confusion, you can see, abounds here. These two disciples are, disciples are full of facts, full of them. I mean, everything they've said, this is the gospel information. This is it. This is the content of the gospel. He's a mighty prophet. He does miracles. He teaches the word of God. He's crucified, and he's been raised from the dead. That's called the gospel, folks. And yet, all the gospel information that they have avails them of nothing. They still don't believe. They don't understand. Something is preventing them from going that last step to be full of hope. 
Because it, it says in verse 17 that they are sad. So if they know all the information of the gospel, why are they sad? It's because they don't believe it. Knowing something and believing something are two different things. Knowing something and understanding something are two different things. Augustine famously said, I believe so that I know. I believe so that I know. Now, there's a lot I could say about this, but briefly, all human knowledge begins with beliefs. Okay? My small child believes red is red because I told them so. Right? They don't know. If I could have called it gray for all I, for all I wanted, they would have believed that. Right? Everything that comes in to our minds has to be believed before it can be known. You have to believe the iron is hot before you know it's hot. Right? This is how these things work. So these guys have all this information, but they don't know anything because they don't believe it. Belief precedes knowing something. They, they can't see Jesus because they don't know Jesus. He's right there in their midst, and they don't know him because all this information they have is just information. It's not something they believe in. It's not something they're excited about. Their cultural and political expectations have blinded them to the true meaning and mission of Jesus Christ. They are blinded to Jesus himself. How often do the circumstances of culture and politics cast doubt, overshadow our faith, our hope, and our peace? Okay, the recent Supreme Court decisions. What is God doing? What He just said, he just allowed the highest court in the land to uphold same-sex mirage, as it's called. Because it's not marriage. It's a mirage. It's not really, <laughs> it's not really what they say it is. Why would he do that? All these videos that have come out about Planned Parenthood, that's dark. That's depressing. This is what's been going on for 50 years. What is he doing? Right? We look at these things. Every, every DNC, you guys, Democrat National Convention, I watch that, and it yanks the faith right out of me. You see all these God-haters getting together <laughs> and just worshiping the system, right? worshiping their platform, which is just ungodly, and it depresses me every year. Right? Why Obama? Why 9-11? my own generation. I still haven't quite figured that out. Why? What, what is he doing? We can't see him. Things happen in our everyday lives in the world, and, and what it does is it causes us to doubt. We, we take our eyes off him. We look, we look around. There's enough going around for us to take our eyes completely off him, to not look at him at all. And when you look around, what happens? It's massively depressing. We look around us, and we fall into doctrinal disputes. As we we grow then dejected and disappointed. These two are walking along. Instead of being uplifted by the information, they're fighting about it. <laughs> this is the church right now, right? The world is overwhelming us to a certain extent, it appears. And so we sit around arguing with one another about Christology. And we think that's the Christian life. Why would God allow his enemies to gain ground? Why would he allow them to have victories over his own people? Why isn't our church growing? We, we take our eyes off him, okay? We take our eyes off him as the events and circumstances grow bigger and bigger. He grows smaller and smaller until we can't see him at all, even when he's right there in our midst. Jesus explains their sadness and their confusion. He tells them. He tells them. In verse 25, he tells them exactly why they are sad and why they are confused. Let's go there and look. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. They are foolish, and they are slow of heart. Okay, the problem isn't God's plan. 
The problem isn't the execution of God's plan. The problem are the foolish and the slow of heart who don't believe that God is good and it is powerful. They don't believe the testimonies about him. What they believe is what what they see with their, their eyes. What they see with their eyes overshadows everything that they know about God. Their heads are full of facts and their hearts are full of sadness because they lack understanding. They lack the interpretive key. They don't have a proper hermeneutic to even understand world events, to make sense of what's going on in, in their, currently in their day and in their own lives. Their version of Jesus isn't bigger than Rome. Their version of Jesus isn't bigger than death. Their Jesus is too small and too weak. They don't understand the cross. They don't understand the empty tomb. They struggle with what the gospel means. They struggle with what it means. They're not confused about the facts. The true meaning of the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. What does it mean? The gospel knowledge itself isn't the point of Christian life. Okay? Experience is. Experiencing Jesus. Recognizing him in your life. Recognizing him in current events. Recognizing what he is doing. Okay? Experiencing him. That's what the Christian life is about. It's not about a bunch of head facts. The head facts are just one piece of it that helps us. But that's not the end in in itself because it these guys, it's not helping them at all. Okay, they're fixated on it, and they can't get off of it. Gospel knowledge doesn't equate to gospel presence. They're two different things. Gospel knowledge does not automatically equate to gospel presence. Jesus has much to teach these disciples. And oddly enough, he shows up, but he doesn't reveal himself directly. He doesn't immediately relieve their anxiety. I don't like this part. <laughs> like, I like the other part. Like, I'll even admit that I'm foolish and slow of heart. Okay, that's true. But what do you mean he shows up and doesn't just make them feel better right away? That makes me so nervous I can't even, I'm going to cry just thinking about it. Just make them feel better already. But that's not his plan. That's not his plan. We read in verse 15 and 16, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They don't see him spiritually. They can't discern him spiritually. And so what he does is he comes and physically blinds them from seeing him. He doesn't appear as himself. He disappears as some dude who's walking along the road, going the same, just happens to be going the same direction as them. Jesus gives them physical limitations that match their spiritual limitations. Interesting. To strengthen their faith. Now, Immediately, I'm just going to say this. We cannot be Job's friends, okay? God took all of your hair from your head and made you look that way because you're a bad person, and you say, right? We can't look at our physical limitations. Like, Job's friends showed up, and they're like, okay, it's a one-for-one deal. Bad things are happening to you, and thus you are wicked. Okay, this is what we tend to do, and I, don't, I want you guys to be careful, careful to understand I'm not saying that here. It's not like, oh, you guys, you know, it's a... It's a one-for-one. One. Like if you get cancer that God is somehow angry with you and, and it's, it's because there's some spiritual thing you need to learn. I mean, there is, but it's not, you guys get what I'm saying? It's not this, he doesn't just come, it's not that easy to understand, I should say. So if somebody is struggling with something, there is something they need to learn. There is something they need to learn. But we, too often in our like, conversations about other people's struggles make it very simple when it's not simple. It's not simple. Um, these guys can still physically see even. It's just they can't see him. They don't recognize who he is. 
But there's other things. St. Paul is blinded, completely blinded. Later, he talks about a thorn in the side, right? He, God uses physical things to teach us spiritual realities. And, and we think it's a one-for-one. One. But sometimes it's a bit of a maze to figure out exactly how the things are connected, okay? And, and he, what he wants, ultimately, is for us to ask questions, to be more searching, to look at him, look to him, ask him, go to him. That's how we understand them. And we have to be very, very careful, especially sermons like this, to go off and give people very bad advice, to speak into their lives in a way that makes the strain worse, not better. Okay? So, so just remember that as, as we proceed. Just like, uh, no, let's see. So right out of the gate, Jesus is teaching the reader about himself. Jesus here in the story is teaching us something. Sometimes we are afflicted physically to learn spiritually. Jesus wants us to see him, but the cure is delayed. Jesus doesn't just show up and deal with them directly. Like, oh, stop being sad. Okay? He comes and he comes alongside them, and the cure is sort of delayed. He takes his time getting there. Sometimes the best thing for a patient is a prolonged rehabilitation. Okay, sometimes. Sometimes he, he drags out the rehab for quite a while because he really wants us to learn something. What these guys are about to learn is so much further and beyond their understanding that he can't just show up and give it to them. If he just shows up and takes away their anxiety, they're not going to learn. He's got to walk with them a little bit and work on them a little bit before they're willing to really learn the lesson they need to learn. Um, this is uh, C.S. Lewis in The Dawn Treader, right? Eustace turns into a dragon. How many times does he have to take the dragon's skin? Aslan takes the dra- scratches him seven times, okay? It's a prolonged healing that he gives Eustace. And in my own life, it's been this very way sometimes, okay? I wouldn't have gotten it right away. And so God had to take his time. Because why? Because I'm foolish and I'm slow of heart. And, and he doesn't just come and shazam it away. He can't. Jesus is preeminently concerned with the condition of the heart, not immediately relieving us of our sadness. Okay? One commentator wrote this, the passive we're kept from recognizing is a divine passive, i.e., God kept them from recognizing Jesus. This lack of recognition allowed Jesus to teach the necessity of his death and resurrection and to show how this was the fulfillment of Scripture. Okay? There's something big that he wants to teach them, so he takes his time. His immediate self-revelation would have uh, relieved their anxiety but would not have taught them the greater things about himself he wanted them to learn. We must learn this. We must learn this for ourselves. We pray and seek to understand our cultural, personal experiences. There are more, uh, the more important things, uh, there are more important things than immediate emotional relief. We've all asked for immediate change in our circumstances, but most often resisting uh, what we really want to do is resist what we're really supposed to learn, okay? We want the immediate relief, and that's not what Jesus does always. Sometimes the best thing for the patient is a prolonged rehabilitation that heals deeper and more completely. More than seeing the risen Lord, Jesus seeks to teach them how to discern him in the larger story. Okay, that's what he wants here. Just seeing him right there in the present isn't what he, he wants to see He wants them to see him throughout history, redemptive history. He wants them not just to see him right then, but to see them through all of Scripture. And not only that, he wants to teach them how to teach people to do that. Okay? That is a a much deeper, much better thing than just having their sadness taken away. Okay? God's power and his lordship over human history. This is what he wants them to learn. His ultimate purposes. This is what he wants them to learn. God, has a, uh, God is a sacrificial lamb who takes away sin. This is what he wants them to learn. God's power over his enemies, including death. 
These are all much bigger concepts that don't fly out of their minds just by him appearing on the road to them. So how does Jesus use the scriptures to teach these truths to others? How does he use the scriptures to teach about himself, to teach all these things about the bigger picture, about his power over history? Jesus wants to give them himself so deeply they won't be sad ever again, right? It's this whole teaching somebody to fish versus giving them a fish, right? He can take away their sadness right now, but what he wants to give them is the ability to search the scriptures and to know him on such a way as to go there when they're sad and to be able to take away sadness always, okay, to have the ultimate hope and peace that the gospel gives us, okay? Jesus is bigger than the current events. He is nearer and he is good. And so Jesus engages them in the most basic Christian exercise. I love this. Jesus shows up, and he doesn't perform a miracle. He performs a Bible study. Oh, yay, right? Yay. Get out your big, giant dictionaries, right? <laughs> this is funny. This is just so funny to me. You expect big things out of it. It's like, nope, nope. We're going to sit. We're going to read. We're going to read the Bible. Just so, he's so unlike us, right? I mean, why, why can't you just beam them directly to Emmaus, right? Do like a miracle and just get their attention, right? It's so funny to me. All right, so verse 25 and 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How do you not know these things? This is one of his favorite questions. It shows up again and again. I'm sorry. They don't have a New Testament. All they have is the Old Testament. And he's still confounded by the fact that they don't know. What do you mean you don't know that you're supposed to be born again? What do you, why are you sad? What do you mean you don't know that, G, that the Messiah was meant to suffer and rise in glory? How do you not know these things? Okay? They, they wouldn't be troubled. They wouldn't be sad if they just read the Old Testament. Again, we all groan a little bit. You mean Leviticus? Yes. You mean the genealogies in Genesis? Yes. You mean that obscure book called Habakkuk? <laughs> Someday I should do a series on Habakkuk. That'd be funny. Right? You mean read the Old Testament and I wouldn't be sad right now? How many of you have actually read the Old Testament and gotten sad? Right? <laughs> that, that has happened to me a few times. Anyway, what, what does Moses and all the prophets mean? Okay, this is a phrase that sometimes, because we know that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, but all the rest of the books in the Old Testament aren't re- always referred to as prophets. I mean, we know the minor prophets and major prophets, but in the Jewish canon, the way they refer to it is it's the books of Moses, the first five, and then they just refer to everything else as the prophets, actually. Uh, so the historical books, the poetical books, all of it is the prophets. So Jesus is, in fact, here I'm... I am just the bearer of this news, telling these guys that the entire Old Testament is about him. Okay? It's not about weird agrarian things from 800 B.C. It, it is about that, but ultimately those weird agrarian things from 800 B.C. are about him. That's fascinating, and that, that doesn't sound good for what we're going to be doing with our time. Right? This is not... How many of you guys want to just run out, of, right, run out and just start studying the Old Testament? That's not usually what we think of, right? This was a common way of referring to the Old Testament. Okay? And Jesus, um, Jesus has said this kind of phrase before about Moses and the prophets. He actually says it in chapter 24 where we're here in Luke in 
in verse 44. He says, Then he said to them, all the disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay? Again, this is his way of referring to the Old Testament. I want to really point that out. He's not just meaning some of it. The Old Testament testifies about Jesus. He is the necessary lens to interpret it. Okay? Without him, you can't interpret it properly. This is why there was so much confusion. People were expecting something other than him. And when they got him, they had a lot of problems. But if you, can, if you take him and you lay him over the top of the Old Testament and you read it through those, that, that pair of glasses, you actually learn a ton of ridiculously profound things about him. It's amazing. The disciples can't see Jesus in the, in the current events because they can't see Jesus in the Old Testament. We won't recognize Jesus in our own lives, in history, or current events until we learn to recognize him in the Old Testament. This is crucial. This is crucial. He is the point of every single verse. Modern Christians have a love-hate relationship with the Old Testament. My favorite thing to think about when I say this, right? Every verse is about him. Deuteronomy 25, 11, and 12. I call it my life verse, okay? When I go to conferences, this is the verse I write on my little name tag. This is it. When two men are fighting in the street, and the wife of one goes out to save her husband and reaches out and clutches the man parts of the other man, cut off her arm and show her no mercy. What does that have to do with Jesus? (laughs) Right? Uh, It all has to do with Jesus. What? Uh, What? Are you sure? Are you sure all of it? Are you sure not just parts of it? Nope. This is what makes sermons like this, this is what makes knowledge like this, revelation like this, so difficult. Because I have, I've, I've known this for years, this verse. It's funny. Look, I memorized it. I haven't memorized many verses of the Bible, but that one I have. <laughs> and I have no idea what it's about. No idea. I mean, I, I get it's in these minor laws that they have, but what that has to do with Jesus, I don't know. Leviticus, Ezekiel, all the stories, all the laws, all the lives, all the events, all the poetry, all the prophecy is about Jesus. Many of us are as anemic in our understanding of who Jesus is because we are anemic in our diet of the Old Testament. The problem is so much of what Jesus says and does in the Gospels depends on a pre-knowledge of the Old Testament. So much of, what, of the application of the Gospel and the Epistles depend on a pre-knowledge of the Old Testament. Now, I'm not saying that a basic understanding of the Gospel to right, go and read uh, Genesis to Malachi and come back to me and I'll tell you about your Savior. No, I'm not saying that. Okay, these disciples on the road already know Jesus. They already have a relationship with him. The problem is it's not, they're not going that next step to really get to know him better. They're not growing because they're, they're avoiding the Old Testament. They don't know what it says about him. To mature in our relationship to Jesus, we have to understand Jesus better. We need to read the Old Testament with the lens of him. Right? How many of you guys would like to know Jesus better? I mean, this is really what it comes down to. Okay, well... You're only going to get so far simply reading the Gospel of John over and over and over. Okay, that's why I don't like it when people, I mean, that's like you go and some guy's got a paper copy in his pocket and that's like all he ever reads. Okay, that's not good. Okay, why did Jesus walk on water? Like we get, okay, he's he's the Lord of, of nature. But why that? Why didn't he just fly? Right, why not any, think of all the other things he could have done to prove that he is the Lord of nature. Well, if you go chronologically through the, through the Gospels, just before this event, he says he's greater than Moses. 
right? He doesn't need God to split the sea. He can walk across the top. He is greater than Moses. Wow. That is something I, that I came to understand by, by reading the Old Testament, okay? There's so much that he does, so much that he says, so much that goes on around him, so much that Paul says and John says about him that just goes by us, okay? Because we don't even know what they're talking about. Like Hebrews, why does it mention this Melchizedek guy? What's with the angels? Like there's so much there in Hebrews. I, I'm not going to get off on that. It's so confusing unless you go back and you read the Old Testament and understand it. All the scriptures whisper Jesus' name. I love that children's story Bible. That's kind of the, the tagline for it. And if you go to Genesis 3.15, it says this. Okay, I, I'm going to send a child into the world, a baby, who's going to crush the head of the serpent, but his ankle's going to be bitten by him. And if you know that, if you've heard, okay, you go and you grab onto that, everyone is waiting now for a son to be born who's going to undo all of these things that Satan has done. This is why everyone keeps getting excited about baby boys. Eve herself gets excited about a baby boy. Okay, and then baby boys come, and what, what happens? Well, they're not that guy that was promised, right? <laughs> Sorry, David. <laughs> Sorry, Moses. Even Moses. I was so close. I, I remember the first time. I was like, how did this guy not just become this? Oh, he hit the rock twice with a staff and made God angry, and he didn't even get to go in the promised land. Sorry, Moses. Right? Everyone is constantly waiting for this boy to be born and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and then a baby is born. Okay? There, there is so much to that. So much is packed into this waiting for a son that unless you are reading the Old Testament over, it, it, if you do that, you're like, man, everybody, this is just everyone wants this baby, this baby boy. Then you go and you read the Gospels, it, I'm telling you, it explodes. Luke, Luke chapter 1, 2, 3 just comes to life in a way that is remarkable. And, and, and we don't get to know him better unless we study him better. And, and we neglect the first, I mean, right? It's four times larger than the New Testament, and it's all about him. We just read Romans over and over again, like good Protestants. Okay, he is the greater Moses. He is the greater Samuel, the Joshua, greater David, greater Daniel. But why? Why is it important? What do you mean? Who is Daniel? What did he do or not do? How does recognizing Jesus in all of the Old Testament help us recognize Jesus in our own lives, in world history, in current events? Well, if you study the Old Testament, okay, the types and shadows, the patterns, you begin to see those types and shadows and patterns in real life, right? When a king is threatened that he's going to lose his kingship and he murders a bunch of babies. What story are we in? Right? Who is he? Right? He's Herod. He's Pharaoh. Right? This is, this is what it, it does for us. Um, another literary example of this, because God tells the same kinds of stories both in history and is the fact in one of these recent Planned Parenthood videos, they kept the babies in pie dishes. They lit, somebody went out and bought pie dishes and thought, that's what we're going we're gonna to keep the babies in. And in the old stories, who is always putting babies in pies? Like immediately, who are these people? They're the wicked witches of the world. Right? These are the real bad guys. Those old stories are telling something that's true. God does that, right? God has a sense of humor. And even in the midst of this wickedness, he mocks these people. You're a bunch of witches and ghouls and goblins. right? No matter how much white wine and... Cobb salad you eat. And Jesus, Jesus and God are telling profound stories in history, profound stories in your lives. 
And unless you learn to understand the characters, right, and the plots, not only, right, are we going to like bad stories in movies, but we're not going to, we're going to be totally baffled by our own lives. We can't understand what's going on around us. We don't get that light overcomes darkness. It's very, very important that we learn this, that we grab hold of this, okay? But why don't we? Why don't we read the Old Testament? Let's get down to it. It's complicated, isn't it? I never talk about this without admitting it. It is hard. It's hard to understand. It's obscure. But the way God made it is that if you can read, you can read the Old Testament. Okay? If you, a lot of it, I can testify to this, has to do with mere repetition. It has to do with passion for it. I want to know Jesus, and so I'm going to read this book. And I'm going to read all of the five books of Moses. And I'm going to read them again. And then all these kinds of things, Sir John, you know what? This is just like when Jesus does that one miracle. And this is like when he says that thing to so-and-so. And this is why there's so much trouble having a baby at the beginning of his story when he comes to earth. You start to see these things. You start to understand these things. You start to understand him. And he gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And everything else that goes around you gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Okay, what do we lack except desire. What do we lack in this process besides passion for it? We have English Bibles. We have the Holy Spirit, who's the interpretive key. These guys who he calls fools and slow of heart don't even have the Holy Spirit, and he rebukes them. We have the Holy Spirit, who is promised to us, who dwells in us, who illuminates our minds. We have an English Bible. We have the Holy Spirit. What are we missing besides a desire? Right? I am not better, right? I have my own rituals. I have my own stories, right? I fill my time with other things besides the Bible. If you ever want to find me on a Friday night, I'll be sitting in my living room at 10 o'clock drinking bourbon watching Blue Bloods. I don't miss it, right? right? I mean, what, what, we fill our time with other things. I have five kids. I have a wife. I have a job. I have friends. Lots and lots of things are vying for our time. But you, you don't necessarily grow in loving Christ that way, right? You don't grow in your relationship to him unless you spend time with him. And you're not spending time with him by simply reading the same New Testament books over and over and over again. Okay. Lastly, Jesus finishes his Bible study. He's done. He's taught them something very important. You want to get to know me better? You want to draw closer to me? You want to understand me better? Go read the Old Testament. And yet, they don't recognize him still. They still see him, and they don't know who he is. Okay, the ministry of the word is not the only thing that they needed. Okay, verse 28 through 31 explains table fellowship. They sit down, he breaks the bread, bam, their eyes are opened. He's prepared their hearts with the word, and in communion, at the meal with him, they experience him, they see him, and what happens? Wasn't, didn't our heart burn? These are guys who have left Jerusalem. They get up immediately. They sprint back. They cover the entire day's travel in a night to get back to Jerusalem to tell everybody else what has happened. These guys who are going in the wrong direction, who are full of sadness, who are not full of passion for Christ, they're debating. They don't have unity. They've been softened by the word of God. They experience him in the meal. They get up. They run back to their friends. They tell everyone about him. They're excited. And Jesus shows up, and he gives them his peace. This is the ministry of the church, the word of God and the table of God. This is what we have to be devoted to. Do you find yourself confused by what God is doing? Do you have a hard time discerning him, recognizing him? 
Are you feeling overwhelmed by your own circumstances, the circumstances of the world? Be devoted to the word of God. Be devoted to the table of God. Don't avoid it. Don't let the um, trials and difficulties of life take from you the word of God. Don't let them take from you the fellowship of the saints around the table of God. Because this is when we see him. This is when we experience him in his fullest and truest sense. Here together, around his table. And this experience becomes so much more when we have worked all week on softening our hearts and refreshing our eyes, learning how to see him. Learning how to see him all week so when we come here we see him crystal clear. Okay, this is not a faith. This is not a religion. This is not a family that is a once-a-week family. We are not once-a-week people of God. We are everyday people of God. And he describes the process clearly right here in the story. Be devoted to him, okay, not just the facts of the Bible, like some, to him in the word of God, and be devoted to, to this table. Come here and eat and drink. Come here with new eyes to see him more clearly and more fully than you ever have. Okay? This is what the Emmaus story is all about. Okay? We need this. We need this badly. I need this badly. Because I'm very easily overcome. I'm very easily saddened. I very easily grow weary. I can't see Jesus and what's going on. But when I turn to his word and I turn to the table, I experience him. I know him. And I go from here and I'm ready. I'm ready to take it on. I'm not, I'm not going to be overcome because Christ is with me. He's right here. He's walking with me. His presence is real. And let that be our testimony. Let that be our lives. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for this message. We thank you for the story of your foolish and slow of heart disciples, Father, that reveal so much about our own foolishness and our own slowness of heart. We pray, Father, that as we go from here and we plan in our schedules and we're dealing with our families and all of the different difficulties and struggles that we have in this world, that you would, Father, bring us back again and again to the word of God, Jesus Christ, kept in your Bible. And, this, and please, Father, give us an extra portion of spirit. Rend heaven and pour your spirit on us so that when we go to the word of God, we see your son and we know him better than we ever have so that we could come here, Father, every Sunday and feast with joy in our hearts, with peace, with unity, with love overflowing us. We thank you, Father, for this day, this table, and for one another, and for the ministry of your Son, Father, that though we have a hard time seeing him, he is always here, he is always with us, he never leaves us. Thank you, and amen.